Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Um, today, I am speaking with Julia Late about her book, Common Prostitutes and Ordinary Citizens. And this is a broadcast for the new book network channel, Sex, Sex Work and Sexualities. Julia, it's so awesome to have you here. I you cannot believe how glad I am to be speaking to you because your work has really impacted my own. So tell us, Julia, who are you? And can you tell us about your research interests? Sure. And thanks so much for having me, Rachel. It's it's actually a real pleasure to think back on work I did quite some time ago in the context of, of the now, which I guess we'll get into in a little bit. So I'm Dr. Julia Late, um, and I'm a, I'm a historian in modern history, and I teach at Birkbeck University of London. Um, and my work um, largely focuses on commercial sex, its criminalization, and, and also um, since then, I've been looking at trafficking, how it kind of grew as a concept, and then how um, the laws against trafficking were applied. And I guess all of my work, which, which looks at sexual labor um, and women's migration and women's work, um, one of the things that it has in common is I'm really interested in the space between what the law and what policy was supposed to do and what it actually did. Okay. Okay. So I was, I was really interested in what I read, not even in your introduction, but you, you know, the, the pre-introduction bit whose name temporarily escapes me. Um, and you said researching prostitution is challenging. What do you mean by this and how did you experience it as challenging? That's really interesting. I think I kind of meant that from a historical point of view, when I wrote this, when I wrote, when I wrote it 10 years ago, which it was 10 years ago, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> in that um, prostitution leaves very unreliable records in the archives. And so, you know, what I, what I really wanted to do and what drove me to the topic was I wanted to find out as much as I could about the lives and experiences and if possible, um, if possible opinions and, and ideas of women who sold sex, because so much had been written about the moral reformers who tried to suppress it, the police who put these laws into practice and all of that sort of stuff. And I really, really wanted to find out more about the women who sold sex and what their lives were like. Um, But of course, all of that was filtered through an archive created by the voices of the powerful, by these authorities, by the moral reformers, by middle-class feminists. Um, and so that that's an immense challenge because you're working with sources that were created by the powerful to to find out about the less powerful. And, it, and it's just immensely challenging. But I think, I mean, underlying that and, and certainly more so today, researching prostitution is challenging because of the way in which it's become a, a minefield within contemporary feminism. And you know, what I mean by that is that it, it has become a flashpoint often in, in bad faith, actually, for, for certain feminists to sort of fixate on um, and, uh, 
kind of create a, a narrative around about um, radical feminism that's also in, in the present day links, linked to trans-exclusionary radical feminism as well. So when I wrote this book, there was no swerf and turf. I mean, there were, they existed, <laughs> but those terms had not been popularized. I, I don't know if they've been, they'd been coined or not, but they certainly hadn't been popularized. But even before um, these explosions of these very, very heated debates on social media, when I picked up the research and when I first started this research, which was in 20, oh God, 2003, <laughs> It was already this flashpoint and had been for several decades, um, you know, in, in, in that in, in that in the intellectual spaces and also in more kind of political activist spaces, um, huge arguments about what sex work was, whether sex work was work, those sorts of things that we, we still seeing played out in the present day. But that was the context in which I was writing both historically and as a kind of historian activist. Um, and so I think that's what I meant by challenging. A lot is captured in that one word, isn't it? <laughs> so, so how did you experience it as challenging, though? I mean, when you were doing your research, was it because I always get the impression like I always have to search history really closely for the voices of women. You know, like it's almost like she's a kind of slighting figure that runs through the the academia that you almost catch glimpse of, but not quite. And you know, the ones that we do catch glimpse of are the ones that that kind of come in contact with our historic gatekeepers, like you know, the law. And you know, when when things aren't going very well for people, is when we hear about them. You know, when they've been arrested or whatever. But we never hear about the voices of the people that have managed to not be in contact with the criminal justice system or have done very nicely, thank you. Those are the hidden histories that, that I find, you know, I find really interesting and why I look, I always really enjoy looking at sort of like the historical viewpoint around sex work and prostitution. So you set the book between two acts, the Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1885 and the Street Offences Act of 1959. So why why these two acts? I think they they're still the two most important acts um, influencing uh, sexual labor and its criminalization um, in what some historians might call the long twentieth century um, and certainly up into the present day. So the eighteen eighty five Criminal Law Amendment Act um, changed both ideas and conversations about prostitution but also the lived experiences of selling sex, especially in London. And so my book's about London and everything I kind of say will, will be about London, but, but much of it actually can be extrapolated to the rest of the UK. And in some cases, because so many of these laws were imperial colonialist laws, it can also be extrapolated to the British world and the, and the, the, the British empire. So, but what, what I'm saying is mostly to do with London. So in 1885, they passed the Criminal Law Amendment Act. Um, this was a kind of omnibus act that was framed ostensibly around raising the age of consent from 13 to 16. Um, and there's lots that can be said about the complexities of these debates about consent, especially vis-a-vis -vis prostitution. But I'll kind of push that to the side right now, because the thing that my book really focuses on is what was actually uh, a clause that was not it was added kind of after the fact so it wasn't um it wasn't the main focus of the legislation um it wasn't the bigger one which was about procuring for the purposes of prostitution whether within or without the king's dominions which was the other big focus of it 
that was the one that I argue is probably what we could call the UK's first modern anti-trafficking law. So that was very important. People were kind of obsessing over it. It didn't get applied all that often. But there's this other little bit in this Criminal Law Amendment Act that few people really, really talked about, but which my book shows was absolutely the most enforced element of that act and also the most influential in terms of shaping the landscape of commercial sex going forward. And that is that it made keeping a brothel a non-indictable offense. And that just seems so so minor in a way. There'd already been laws against brothels. So the Disorderly Houses Acts, which had been passed in the 18th and 19th centuries, all targeted brothels. You know, disorderly houses was a was a euphemism mostly for brothels. There were other, you know, premises that came under it, but mostly these are brothels. But but it wasn't enforced particularly often because it required evidence that the house had become quote unquote disorderly, that there was evidence of some kind of crime like theft or fencing that going on inside, or that it was actually a raucous space that was disturbing neighbors. Um, it was also indictable, which meant it had to go before a higher court. And so it was very expensive to prosecute. So this created a space where a lot of women could club together and um, work together in out of one house selling sex, taking clients back there, um, sometimes living there, sometimes not. After 1885, uh, a brothel became simply illegal with no need to prove disorderliness or even exploitation going on inside. And so um, there was a few years where they realized, oh, um, crap, we, we didn't actually define a brothel. We just used the word brothel in the statute without defining it. And case law for about a decade defines it, and this is going to sound really familiar, especially to people who are campaigning for decrim and women who are currently under the thumb of this system. The crucial thing about case law is it defined a brothel as a space where more than one woman practices prostitution. So that is, to this day, the legislation, the not, not the specific legislation, but the definition of brothel keeping we have. This enabled moral reform organizations like the National Vigilance Association in tandem with a relatively reluctant police force to go on an all-out crusade against these houses that were scattered around London, mostly um, houses in which two or three women had clubbed together to to work and to sell sex. Um, So we see brothel prosecutions going from a couple hundred to um, over a thousand. And this was absolutely cataclysmic. It fundamentally changed the, the sex trade in London. So that's just the answer to the first law. (laughs) So that's why I chose that. Um, And the second law, the 1959 Street Offenses Act, um, was in many ways sort of the end of a very long road of gradual criminalization that I track throughout the course of the book. Um, And it it took what was um, kind of already the the law that was in place, the, the Metropolitan Police Act, the Towns Police Clauses Act, and the Vagrancy Act, which all use different sort of forms of words to say any common prostitute loitering or soliciting um, for the purposes of prostitution to the annoyance of passengers or behaving in a riotous manner. All of these required some proof beyond just the fact that a woman was, quote unquote, a prostitute and on the street. They required her to be disorderly or be, you know, annoying people. But as I show in my book, over the course of the early 20th century, 
this need to prove annoyance really fell out of jurisprudence. So it, w- it just sort of became rote in a way. But by 19, the 1950s, it was thought, you know, this law is no longer effective. The fines are too low. And the need to prove annoyance sometimes trips us up, you know, if a woman dares to plead not guilty, for example. And so the 1959 Street Offenses Act got rid of that need to prove annoyance. So it, it did no longer did you need to even remotely pretend to prove annoyance. All you need to prove that a woman was that a woman was labeled as a common prostitute and that she was on the street. This is, again, how prostitution is policed in the, in the present day uh, in terms of street solicitation. Um, it remains one of the most fundamentally unjust laws in the UK statute book. Um, it survived after you know, the suspect person's laws had been repealed. Um, and it's, it's just incredible to me, actually. And so I just think it is a really important bookend for any study about criminalization. Yeah. I, so you've got like, this is kind of like basically 75 year gap that, that, that is really, you know, we don't really talk about this space very much, but it's so important, isn't it? Because, you know, with uh, what happens in 1885 is you started to flush the women out of the houses, uh, out of the brothels onto the road. And then, you know, then, then, then the law, you know, what's outdoors, the law increases. So why, what, what was going on immediately before 1885? What was that, you know, why was 1885 such a water? shed moment. How did the book discuss that? Yeah, so it 1885 was really and truly a watershed moment for so many issues related to sexual morality, sexual abuse and harassment, women's rights, age of consent. Um, it was a really big moment. And leading up to it were two major media sort of sex scandals or prostitution scandals. The first, which kind of kicked off in 1879, was brought about when uh, a group of moral reform campaigners, um, kind of evangelicals and dissenting dissenting Christians, came together to um, address what they saw as a growing problem of trafficking in very young British girls to Belgium. Belgium had a system of regulated prostitution, which means that its brothels were legal, highly regimented. Women working within them were subject to forcible medical inspection um, and um, all kinds of rules about where they could and couldn't go. From the UK moral reform perspective, this system created a market for trafficking and particularly a trafficking in very young girls. And so Alfred Dyer, one of these moral reform campaigners, set out to expose it. Um, which he which he did. He he sort of trotted out um, several victims of of this trafficking system before Parliament got them to tell their their horrible stories. And at the end, in 1881, uh, a select committee was formed to investigate this traffic and to propose new legislation to stop it. And um, they they sat around for a couple of years, pondering particularly the question of age of consent, which was 13, as I said. Um, thinking quite hard about how dangerous it would be to raise the age of consent because then their sons might be accused 
of statutory rape, um, you know, their poor sons. This comes up a lot. Um, and and so the, the, the act started to flounder. They, they proposed the Criminal Law Amendment Act, a version of it, but it really started to flounder because it was seen as too extreme, you know, this raising of the age of consent is going to raise uh, open all, can, all kinds of cans of worms, etc. Um, and it was then that a Another group of moral reform campaigners, including Josephine Butler, who anyone anyone who studies the history of prostitution will probably know that name. Um, Josephine Butler, who had campaigned against the Contagious Diseases Act, which was Britain's attempt at regulation, um, got in touch with William Stead, who was a muckraking, social crusading journalist, um, active in London um, and quite famous in his own right for a number of different things. Together, they formed what they called a secret commission. Instead, bought a virgin, um, a 13-year-old girl, for five pounds, and then sort of went through the motions of showing how he, she could be trafficked. Um, as a lot of historians have pointed out, actually what Stead did to this young woman was itself a crime. Um, but Stead didn't, didn't really notice that because he was so caught up with the, with the fervor of his moral campaign. Um, and so they published The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon in 1885, in July 1885. And it's, it was, it remains to this day, one of the biggest newspaper sensations of all time. It was internationally distributed. People were clamoring for copies. There were riots and mobs. Um, people just could not believe what they were reading because nothing like that had ever been in a newspaper before. Um, and so this lent a weight to this campaign to pass the 1885 Criminal Law Amendment Act. And the parliamentarians, no matter what they thought about their poor sons um, accidentally sleeping with 13-year-old girls, had really no choice but to pass it at that point. Um, but that's that's what I said, you know, when I said at the beginning, the space between what the law is supposed to do and what it actually does. 1885 is such a great example. The law was supposed to protect women. Instead, it put in a series of clauses, including the brothel clause, that actually made it much more dangerous. Yeah, um, yeah. And we see, and this is still like current at the moment, isn't it? The, the sort of like the 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 kind of legislation that is aimed at sort of the purchases of sex. Like you know, our research with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine shows that that makes it more dangerous for women. But the irony of a rich person buying what was presumably a poor 13-year-old in order to prove a point about trafficking, I think, probably sums up that debate and every debate that's come since then. You know, so, it really does. Can you, tell, can you tell us what was happening in terms of, of regulating prostitution before the Contagious Diseases Act? What was, what was going on before then? And so, before yeah. The yeah. So, I mean... Before the CD Act, it, prostitution was mostly policed using um, public order acts, so the Vagrancy Act um, and those sorts of things. And people were mostly concerned about its presence in public. Um, it was largely considered a necessary evil other than that. Um, and the Contagious Diseases Acts were, were designed to address the problem of venereal disease. Um, this was a time when there was a syphilis epidemic. Um, people were getting more and more concerned about the way that it was really debilitating whole populations and in particular, whole militaries, which was really what they were worried about. Um, um, you know, solidifying that link between prostitution control and militarism, which continues straight up to today. 
Um, and so they put in place the Contagious Diseases Act, which was Britain's attempt at regulation. It was a, a half-assed attempt in many ways in that it didn't regulate brothels at all. Um, and it didn't designate any kind of tolerance zones or spaces where commercial sex would be um, tolerated on the street. Instead, it insisted, and, and it also didn't apply to London. It was only in garrison towns and port cities. And it, it, it stipulated that women, again, had to be forcibly inspected for venereal disease, etc. And what's really interesting that comes out of the Contagious Diseases Acts is it, it makes prostitution part of a conversation for the first time, um, part of a conversation of moral reform and of feminism or early feminism. They didn't call it feminism. The women's movement is probably more accurate. Um, and what's really fascinating is in that moment, in that campaign to repeal the Contagious Diseases Acts, you see the two kind of roots, uh, as in R-O-O-T-S, of contemporary feminist debates about prostitution. On the one hand, you had women saying, the Contagious Diseases Acts infringes on the rights of women. It um, invades their bodily autonomy. Um, it gives far too much power to the police who are corrupt and who police corruptly. Um, and it is, it is just constitutionally wrong. On the other hand, um, and I'm simplifying because there were people who held both of these beliefs simultaneously. But on the other hand, you had groups of people who were saying the Contagious Diseases Acts are wrong, not because of the way that they infringe on anyone's rights, but because they license vice. They say that prostitution is okay. They give men permission to buy sex and buying sex is morally wrong. Um, and so you still see those two, um, those two vantage points, I think, I think today. And what's particularly remarkable, so after the Contagious Diseases Acts are passed, all of these people who were against them because they licensed vice move into the moral reform movement. And instead of asking to repeal a law, they start putting more laws in place that criminalize commercial sex. And what's really striking to me as I look at debates in the present day about the Nordic model is how people, you know, in 1885 really believed that if you make a law against something, it goes away. <laughs> That I mean that that incredibly, you know, almost childish idea. Um, the salience of that, even even now, is really striking to a historian who knows perfectly well that when you make a law against something, it absolutely does not go away. It just changes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just I just find it so interesting how little actually has changed in terms of these kinds of attitudes. And when you criminalise something as well, what you do is you bring in a lot more sort of serious crime. Yeah, so I was, uh, you know, and I, that was one of the reasons why I invited you along and why I really enjoyed your book, because um, this kind of, uh, this, this, the, the, um, uh, the Diseases Act, the Contagious Diseases Act, didn't just appear out of nowhere. It'd been test-driven in India about 50 years beforehand, maybe a bit more, when um, the, the East India Company had used it as a way to protect their, their kind of, um, to protect themselves from their their own employees, yeah. So they would criminalise like Indian women, so that the uh, the progeny of Indian women and in, sort of like British men couldn't inherit, you know, their father's share in the company, his his rights there. But at the same time, they used it to protect 
protect rabbit ears. Nobody can see me. Rabbit ears. Um, they can to protect the 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 military arm of their operation. So the lock hospitals. So the contagious diseases act basically meant that if a policeman saw you and considered that you may be a prostitute, okay, which generally meant you were poor and outdoors, um, meant that you could be taken to a, a police station, given an internal examination, and then if you were found to be contaminated, you could be held up to 90 days in a lock hospital. So you'd be incarcerated in a hospital. And they'd imported this idea from India where it had not worked. So, you know, the colonizers have brought this back to their own port. And what I really struck me about this and what I really like the book is this, you see this attack, this kind of attack by elites on a poor population. You know, and that's why, you know, that's why I, you know, that's why I, I really attach this book and that's why I really, uh, that's why I invited you to, to talk about it. You, I, you've used this phrase and I had to write it down because I really liked it. Yeah. You use a phrase that um, prostitution existed in the intersection between poor, poor homes and bad homes. How does the book explore and challenge this? Oh, in terms of the belief that that it was it, it was bad homes that that created um, prostitution. Um, it's interesting because on the one hand, right, that's you know it, it's the beginning of a kind of social critique of the way that poverty engenders difficult choices for 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 the people who are poor, right? So this idea that poor homes and bad homes create um, situations where women are vulnerable to to you know, having having to sell sex um, to to make ends meet is you know is is a pretty valid is a pretty valid critique that I think most most people um, uh, would echo in the present day that there's a obviously clear link between poverty between chaotic homes and um, women being forced to make really difficult decisions, be that to move into sex work or to move into a, into a crappy low paid job. Um, so. You know, on the one hand, I, I, you know, you have to take these early social investigators and their and their analysis, uh, you know, uh, on their own terms. But on the other hand, there was this kind of sense that, you know, prostitution was a character flaw, that it was it was created by bad parenting and and bad homes, um, you know, and that 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 sleight of hand um, meant that the people who believed that weren't looking at prostitution as a symptom of systematic inequalities. Um, they, they were looking at it as, as a, as a problem of social control. So um, one really telling thing is be, actually even before the criminal law amendment act was passed, the 1881 industrial schools act was passed, which was one of the first acts that enabled the States to take children away from women who had been labeled prostitutes. Um, and so this this act, which gets reiterated in several other um, several other acts as the 20th century wears on, um, is just the, one of these key ways in which we can see how the state and how legislators are thinking about how to solve the problem of prostitution. You know, it's 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 a problem that's not about poverty, according to them. It's about bad homes, and what needs to happen is the state needs to intervene, take children out of those bad homes, and put them into care. Um, and what's really, you know, what's incredible about that is that it's in those spaces of quote unquote care where so many young women experience, um, you know, physical and sexual and emotional abuse 
that ends up creating new experiences of, you know, chaotic lives and putting them more at risk of, of being exploited later in life. Um, but it's just so that that kind of notion of bad homes hasn't gone away, has it? You know, that's still such a predominant narrative of, you know, oh, women turn to sex work because they've been screwed up by their bad homes, um, which is just another another way to to look away from the systematic inequalities that yeah. create these systems. Yeah. And we see that narrative. It's not just in sex work. I, as you were talking, it made me remember sort of like what I'd heard about the riots in 2011. And it's like basically the rioting in 2011 was nothing to do with like police brutality or, or police victimizing, you know, sort of working class black men. It was about single mothers. They were to blame. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. It was just absolutely incredible how they got there. You know, I mean, we might have, you know, none of us should have been surprised, but it was it was really quite incredible that that pivot. And we do see that pivot so often. And, you know, it's the same thing when you look at these early books about, you know, why do women become prostitutes? Um, there's so many that basically have that as their their main research question. Um, and, you know, one of the one of the things that they always obsess over is this um, this phrase that the Victorians especially would use quite a lot, which is love of finery. And that you reminded me of this when you talked about the riots, because, of course, that was the other thing. It was, oh, this has, you know, this isn't this isn't a spontaneous protest against racial injustice. They just want big TVs. Um, And um, and, and, you know, this this same narrative, again, that, um, you know, women turn to prostitution because of a love of finery, because they want fancy dresses, because they want nice ribbons for their hair Um, later on by the 1920s, because they want money to go to the cinema. And of course, this is all being written by people who've always had nice dresses, who've always had ribbons for their hair, and who don't think twice about being able to afford to go to the cinema. Um, so it's it's really it's really interesting to see these early early twentieth century um, you know researchers and campaigners talk about a, a love of finery um, when they well when they know when they clearly know how much that finery means actually yeah. and how much meaning it adds to people's lives and um, you know, how, how, you know, it's okay for the middle class to want nice dresses, but it's not okay for working class girls to aspire to that. Working yeah. class girls are meant to know their place and their place is making the dresses, not wearing them. Yeah. Um, and I just, I just think that's such a, a telling confluence of attitudes. Yeah. And it's so interesting, isn't it? When you when you start to look at these these calls of like bad parenting, how often that's used as a as a weapon against the the, the, the poorer classes. You know, it's almost like you're you know, the responsibility of, of poverty is down to your inability to raise your child, not you know, not the exploitation of elites or this constant sort of desire for, for acquisition by um sort of like you know corporate grid because the backdrop here is also as well is that we've got the industrial revolution haven't we the industrial revolution is really taking hold we've got this mass migration from the country to the town you've got like appalling sort of like working working conditions exploitative working conditions from often by the same types of women that are looking to rescue street women so can you tell us how the book explores prostitution and working class forms of labor and migration. Sure. Um, so I, I really, I mean, I've often, I always say, you know, um, I'm not a historian of sexuality. I'm a historian of labor. Um, and I very, very much came to this topic interested in women's work. 
Um, and I, I remain interested in women's work. And I, you know, I, I absolutely see sexual labor as part of the story of, of women's work. And so that's the framing, really, of the whole book. Um, and I really, I mean, I think I got into that question in a relatively simple way, which was thinking about what it would be like to work as a domestic servant. So rather than, um, you know, following the cue of these early 20th century moral reformers and obsessing over what it was like to be a prostitute, I thought first instead about, you know, what it was like to do the alternate thing that most, you know, the other job that was open to most women, which was domestic service. I looked at average wages. I looked at working hours. I looked at working conditions. And what I found overwhelmingly was that these, you know, obviously the hours were incredibly long. I mean, I think even longer than people realize. So um, in my more recent book, The Disappearance of Lydia Harvey, I think about domestic service quite a lot because Lydia Harvey, the main person in that story, was a domestic servant, like so many other women from that time. And what I discovered was she was working as a domestic servant when New Zealand domestic servants, and that's where she was from, um, New Zealand domestic servants tried to form a union. And their big ask as a union, so they've they formed this very young union and their big demand is a 68 hour working week. Whoa. That's what they're asking for. Whoa. Can you imagine the hours they were actually working? <laughs> so, you know, I, 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 I feel like I could have just stopped my book there. <laughs> just saying, you know, 68 hour work week is what women were aspiring to in domestic service. So let's assume 75 to 80 hours of work a week, living with your employer under their thumb, often subjected to sexual violence and sexual coercion, harassment, um, you know, often incredibly isolated. And in terms of pay, a pittance, a pittance, less than a pound a week um, in the early 19th century, about a pound a week by the 20th century. Um, and so I, you know, and I'm not haven't even gotten into the backbreaking physical labor of domestic service, um, and so that I did all of that work before I even thought about, you know, okay, so what what is it like to sell sex, and of course, because sexual labor is such a diverse job, far more diverse actually than domestic services, um, the answer to that was more complicated because it really depended um, on the kind of work a woman was doing, where they were working, who they were working for, um, you know, how long they worked. Some women, um, you know, very much engaged in prostitution as an economy of makeshift. So making ends meet, say, for instance, they, they got lippy with their domestic servant um, mistress and were kicked out of the house and they're kind of floating around trying to find another le legit job. And so they sell sex in between to make ends meet. Others would have done it just for a short period in their life before they met a man and got married, for example. Um, and other, other women would be what we might call professionals um, in, in the present day, selling sex for a very long period in their life course um, and making a very, very good living from it. So the diversity is enormous. But what doesn't change is just how many fewer hours women would work and how much more money they would make 
yeah. than if they had worked in domestic service. Yeah, the affordances of sex work, which loosely I always think it's much better to fuck the middle class than be fucked by them. <laughs> <laughs> that that a version of that saying comes through the sources so many times, you know, <laughs> w- women encountering these moral reformers and just saying, you know, what are you going to give me if I do give this up? Like a job working yeah. for you? Um or, you know, well, you're, and I mean, the, and the other side of it, you know, which isn't a labor side, but a sexual um, violence side, you know, another claim that women would often make, women who sold sex would often make is like, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be fucked either way. You know, I am, I am a working class woman in a society in which we are sexually and economically subjugated. So I might as well get paid for it. Yeah. You know, I know that I am going to encounter sexual violence in my lifetime, whether it be from the son of my employer or from, you know, a neighbor on the road. So I, I've decided to monetize it. I've, yeah. I've decided to view it transactionally. Um, and they say that the, that that comes through so often, even though it's not a sentiment that these moral reformers are keen to promote. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, you still get these glimpses of women's voices saying exactly that. Yeah, yeah. But it's also as well, it's a case of this, it's like, I'm more likely to experience sexual violence when I'm disempowered by my poverty. So actually for these women, sex or prostitution is a way of tackling that kind of incidental like sexual violence that you would experience, like working isolated in, in some, some rich dude's house. Yeah, I'm, I know where I'd rather be. I'd rather be sat around the kitchen table with my mates in a brothel yeah, than, than, than sort of like, you know, scrubbing under the kitchen table in a rich house where I can't, you know, I'm isolated because we never talk about the social harms of like being isolated from your community. We never talk about the social harms of of women working very long, poorly paid jobs to their families, you know, and how that impacts, you know, multi-generations of poor working families when, when mothers are not around because they're working. You know, long, long exploitative hours. This is not a right against working working mothers. I have been both. Yeah, but you know, if you're if you if you're having to work, like you know, if you're asking to be able to work sixty eight hours, where are your children in those sixty eight hours? Yeah, which really throws this narrative about bad homes into relief, doesn't it? Right. So, so it you know. Bad homes are just another way in which, you know, the reforming progressive middle classes mistook a symptom of a problem for the problem itself, you know, and, and, and the, the, the bad homes were because you had mothers who had to go out and work incredibly long hours um, and you, you, you had incredible poverty, overcrowding, really unstable living conditions because you could be, you know, evicted at a moment's notice. Or just, you know, told, oh, by the way, your house is going to be knocked down for slum clearances. Um, these these sorts of chaotic lives were, were were just kind of a reality for an incredible number of, of poor people. Um, and of course, their homes aren't necessarily going to become happy spaces as a result. Um, so yeah, it's I, I think often about that, that idea of, of mistaking a symptom of the problem for the actual problem. I know it's almost like the, the the campaigners don't actually see the impact that they themselves and their lifestyles and the class that they belong to actually have 
on the on the, the landscape that that grossly impacts the working classes you yeah. know and it's quite interesting because i think george bernard shaw was writing at the time and calling out the middle classes saying you know sort of prostitution is stitched into your clothing you know yeah. um can you tell us how the book discusses the criminalizing of brothels in the in the period that the book covers and, and how that impacted impacted sex workers lives what was what was the impact of this Sure. And I, I hinted at this at the sort of first part of our, our conversation, but it's actually a quite a complex story. So like I said, the 1885 Criminal Law Amendment Act is passed, makes brothels an, a non-indictable offense, which means that they only need to be seen in front of a police court magistrate, making the entire thing easier, cheaper, and faster to prosecute. And so they, they put that in place and then, like I said, realized they hadn't actually defined a brothel. Um, and so they turn, like, because of the, the way that UK law works, they turn to case law. And there is um, one quite important case called Singleton versus Ellison, which um, sh- kind of shows, on the one hand, um, you know, how case law definitions have immense impact. But on the other hand, how, um, I'm trying to think of the right word how clever women are in terms of getting around these new legislations. So what started happening um, right after um, the Criminal Law Amendment Act was passed and brothels started being targeted is women started moving into um, apartment buildings. Um, So this was an era, the late 19th century, actually I just mentioned slum clearances. So this is an era when a lot of slum clearances are sweeping through particularly the West End of London and new ostensibly middle-class apartment blocks are being put up. Um, you can still see them see them today, you know, around Cambridge Circus, um, Seven Dials area, that, that, sort of, that sort of area of London. And women started moving into them um, and working alone from these flats. Um, you know, they would almost always solicit on the street because street solicitation was the norm until, well, until 1959, really. Um, so they would solicit on the street and bring men back to these these small flats where they worked alone. Um, and technically that meant weren't brothels. But then law started going after that, saying, well, if the whole if the building has more than one one woman working there, then that does constitute a brothel. And so there was lots and lots of back and forth about that. Um, but ultimately, what resulted was a case law definition that said more than one woman working together. Um, so a number of things started happening. Once they, once they basically said, well, we'll prosecute brothels if we see more than one woman working together. Um, some, and in a lot of the changes, the sort of geographical and physical changes are really became emblematic of London's um, prostitution scene in the second half of the, of the 20th century. For instance, the walk-ups. So the walk-up flats in Soho, which were an adaptation um, where a woman would walk up alone, a single entrance, a single premises, therefore not a brothel. Um, so that was one space that started to develop to get around to the law. A lot of bed sit rooms, um, often quite isolated and dangerous um, because there were no other people living around there. They were kind of tucked away in the back of shops. Um, and the police themselves say these are incredibly dangerous spaces for women to work. Um, they say this in the context of, of, of investigating a series of murders in the 1930s um, in which men were able to target women selling sex because they were working in such isolated conditions. And that story, unfortunately, just keeps repeating itself over the course of the 20th century, where 
women are, are forced by crackdowns to work in more and more isolated conditions. They're not allowed to work with other women. They even, in some cases, start cracking down on prostitutes' maids, as they were called at the time. So women who would, you know, take the bookings, get people in, they, they still absolutely exist today. Um, and so, yeah, all of this kind of added up to women either being forced to work very um, vulnerably alone or turning to third parties. Um, so that's pimps, traffickers, procurers, most of all, landlords, really dodgy landlords, estate agents, um, but also husbands. So that's where it gets really complicated because uh, a lot of women are, in the police's words, um, using men who are quote unquote posing as husbands in order to say, we're a married couple, we're not running a brothel. Um, and so the police see this as just another third party. I think the reality is a lot more complicated. I think that women were in effective romantic relationships with men as well. Um, but the situation put them in such difficult, tangly situations in terms of um, where they were allowed to work and who they were allowed to work with. Yeah. But also as well, it kind of builds into this whole narrative that, that sex working women are so vulnerable that they're incapable of having like loving relationships. It's almost like it, that kind of idea that as a prostitute, you can't have a relationship with a man. You're kind of put outside, even further outside what constitutes a real inverted rabbit is again, people, real woman. And that's really strange because when I researched webcam performers, that like most of them were in relationships and the husbands were helping they were like you know they would they would run running their twitter sort of um uh accounts whilst the women were performing or they were they were helping out they were part of the kind of cottage industry that the family was running which which with the women performing but they were part of it but you know the women were in like loving relationships so it kind of like once again there's this kind of like you're pushing women out of the kind of like the larger working class body because they're engaged in labour that doesn't fit in with this kind of like middle class of um, morality. And then you're kind of pushing them out of the family. You know, it's this constant like push, push, push of, of women further and further away from the, the, the mainstream. So um, it's really interesting because there's a chapter in the book and you actually, uh, Lydia starts to appear. So tell us who Lydia is and, and why she's important to your research. Sure thing. So yes, um, Lydia Harvey um, has become a huge part of my life, which I didn't realize would happen when I was when I was re writing this first book. So, um, and it kind of goes back to something you said about you know really wanting to find more of the the voices of of, of women in the past, and and always being quite frustrated by the way that they kind of just sort of briefly appear and walk across the scene and then disappear again, and that's. You know, I did in my in the in the book we're discussing now in Common Prostitutes and Ordinary Citizens. I I tried very very hard to include any moments of of resistance, of agency, of voice, of experience within it. And and the book is peppered with anecdotes of glimpses that I catch of these really complex, real, interesting women in the archives. And Lydia Harvey is one of them. And I she's used to frame a chapter that's about the way that anti trafficking law was applied in Britain. Um, largely as anti-immigration law. Um, and so that's that's her chapter. And I finished the book and I, um, you know, I, I it got published and all of that. And I thought, you know, okay, I've, 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 I've finished that now. But Lydia Harvey wouldn't get out of my head. Um, possibly because in some ways her story was 
um, so in keeping with the the panics over white slavery and and sex trafficking. So white slavery, very much in in air quotes, it was the term that was used for sex trafficking at the time, um, which you know bears a lot of unpacking that we don't have time for. Um, but, you know, her story was in some ways seeming to conform to that narrative, that narrative of the innocent, the innocent victim kidnapped and, and sent to Buenos Aires, which is what happened to her, forced into the sex trade and then shipped on to London, where she was finally found by the police. Um, and I just used her as an example. And I but I just started thinking, you know, what would happen if I more radically contextualized her? Um, and thought more deeply about her before and her after, because just as you say, these, you know, the way that we legally and culturally conceive of prostitution is always to make women separate, to push them out of the family, to push them out of the working class, to say, you know, they're aberrant, they're they're a, they're a category unto themselves. But the reality is that they're they're just like anybody else. They're deeply entangled with their communities. Um, they're very much part of, of the working class. Um, they have befores and they have afters. Um, and so my next book, which came out 10 years after the one we're discussing, was all about Lydia Harvey and about her sort of complex humanity, actually, um, her, her before and her after, in which, you know, she does lead a happy life, actually. She's not condemned to disease and misery for the rest of her days because she sold sex even because she was forced to sell sex. Um, and so I, I just really wanted to, to think more deeply about Lydia Harvey and, and well, yeah, I did. Yeah, no, no, no. So that's really important as well, isn't it? It's like people don't get stuck in amber, do they? Even if you've been through an exploitative situation, it does not mean that you don't have the resources to, un, you know, to extricate yourself from that, from that, you know, from that um, from that situation, which has been my own lived experience. Uh, so, can you tell us how the um, the book explores, uh, you know, like women that that um, challenge the law? You you make some really interesting points about women challenging the law and how that panned out for them. Yeah, the it's I I, I just love those moments. I really love those moments, and luckily because um, women who sold sex. Tended uh, tended to have quite strong opinions, actually. Um, it does come through quite a bit, um, and you know most of their challenges are very very small ones. What you know, uh, Michelle de Certeau might call tactics hmm. um, to to kind of navigate their way in between and around people more powerful than them, the authorities, mostly most of all the police. And, you know, it can range from very little things like knowing exactly where the border between C and D division in, in Soho and North Soho was, so that if a police officer cautioned you in C division, you just needed to walk up the street to D division where there was a different set of police officers who wouldn't know you for the rest of the night. So lots and lots and stuff like that. So yeah, sort of finding new places to work, finding new ways to solicit almost always coming at a cost, which was the cost of isolation, mm. um, um, which, you know, I document really carefully in the book. But I think even if it did come at a cost, it's still really worth highlighting, you know, how resilient um, women were um, and actually how resilient commercial sex was in, in terms of the fact that no matter how much they tried to make it illegal, no matter how much they tried to shut down ways that it could operate, 
um, as one police officer put it, it's just like displacing water. Yeah. Um, and so there's lots and lots of instances of that. There's some wonderful lines. Um, the, there's a, one of my favorite books um, is called The Men in My Life by Marth Watts, who was uh, a woman who was part of the very notorious Messina gang in the 1940s in London. So what was arguably London's at the time and possibly forever largest kind of pimping ring, pimping uh, organization. She worked for them and um, it's, it, her, her book's incredible and captures all the nuance of coercion and choice, you know, of, of agency and exploitation that, that she lived through. Um, but she has this wonderful line about um, the number of times she's been arrested and fined for mostly for soliciting. And she just says, you know, basically, I've contributed handsomely to to the savings of your of the British exchequer. <laughs> um, you know, saying like I, I, the sex workers are paying paying tax essentially, and and paying a very very handsome tax in order to be able to work. And you just get you just until the seventies when the sex workers' rights movement starts to explode. Um, and sex workers themselves are are really starting to amplify their own voices. Huh. Um, you really just get snippets of it. But Marth Watts is one of them. These these highly critical, cynical, and funny um, critiques of the system. Um, and they're just they're just like gold dust in the archive. I love finding them. There's this one moment um, when they're trying to. It's during the Jack the Ripper investigation. They're trying to invest. They're trying to interview find a woman who sells sex um whose name is pearly paul um to to interview because they think they may she may have seen something and um uh he the she tries to get away from the police officer and the police officer sort of says where are you going and she says i'm going to drown myself (laughs) (laughs) you know just these wonderful moments where you can see women reversing the narrative and kind of um, just, just completely exploding what was expected of them. Yeah, exactly. Their actual, their actual personality comes through because that's what yeah. happens, doesn't it? When you remove narrative, when you remove voice, you remove substance. So, um, so who did you write this book for? Who was, who was your, your, your aimed audience? That's a really great question that no one's ever asked me. So, um, who did I write this book for? I think it really changed as time went on. Um, so initially, you know, I came to this topic as a historian, a historian interested in women's work, interested in marginalized voices, interested in people who had been um, invisibilized by the archive and ways to, to kind of find them nonetheless. And so I was, I think, writing the book initially for historians, for other historians, for people who were interested in the past. Um, and in some ways, I, I, that's that's still very true. It's a history book, and it connects to much broader historical themes, as you've picked up on. Um, and so, yeah, I've been I wrote it for, for historians, but you know, as as time went on, and particularly by the time I was finishing up my PhD and moving towards turning it into a book, when debates about sex work really heated up in the contemporary world, in my world. Um, I realized that I was also writing it for the present and I was writing it um, for policymakers, um, for campaigners, uh, showing how even the best intentioned pieces of legislation 
can have very ironic and harmful outcomes. Um, and that I think is still the most useful part of my book. It yeah. is in some ways a longitudinal study of what criminalizing commercial sex does. Well, it's a longitudinal um, study of the damages that, um, that cast serial feminism does. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's, that's, um, you know, that's, that's the first point. And I, I, I really wish I'd, 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 yeah, I, I'd, I'd had that carceral feminism term when I was writing, I, because I, I really could have put it to work in this book. But that's absolutely what it is. And, and it's not just carceral feminism, um, because I think in, in this case, you know, the feminists who are campaigning in the early 20th century, and this is one of my bugbears, is this this claim by Nordic model proponents um, and radical feminists that their way is the feminist way um, and their way is, is the historically feminist way. And, you know, they claim Josephine Butler as, you know, on their side and that sort of stuff. But if you look to the early 20th century, you've got feminists like Alison Nielens who are actively campaigning to decriminalize street solicitation. This decriminalize, de, 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 decriminalize feminism, you know, the sort of sex workers' rights feminism also has a deep history. So I, I, I always sort of say, you know, yes, of course, there's carceral feminism, but there are other historical forms of feminism that did not pursue this. Yes, they were a minority voice, but they did exist. Um, and so these sort of Nordic model feminists, quote unquote, don't get to claim the history of feminism as being on their side um, because it's not. Um, but yeah, so it's that. And I guess I, you know, in a way, and I don't think I ever would have really presumed this um, when I was writing um, because I have no experience myself of sexual labor, but I did feel that I wanted to write it for women in the present day who sell sex and who are interested in the history of the laws under which they are forced to labor. Um, and, you know, it's one of the many reasons why I was so keen to uncover that gold dust, to find the, just the traces of these voices in the past, because so much that's been written about prostitution has been written from the perspective and through the eyes of middle-class moral reformers or yeah. the police. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, those, that was the sort of three reasons I, and the three people, three groups I was writing this book for. And that's still the case today. I mean, you know, um, luckily like, there's more and more sort of like sex workers and former sex workers like me that are getting to the stage where we are as educated as the people who would try to, 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 to study us. But trying to get those people then to let go of their, their, their claim to ownership of sex workers' voices, that's a whole battle in itself. But luckily, you know, my kids are grown and I've got plenty of energy, so I'm up for the route. So, um, so what did you learn from writing the book? Ooh, what did I learn from writing the book? I mean, first and foremost, I learned that criminalizing commercial sex is a very bad idea. I didn't come to this subject with a preconceived notion of that. I was not active in kind of sex work politics before 2003. I, you know, I had, I had done my degree in history looking at very different topics. Um, uh, so I, I came to the subject with a research question. And what I learned was the answer. And the simplest way to put that answer is criminalizing commercial sex doesn't work and does more harm than good. Um, and I, I, I really want to insist that I learned that because that is something 
that is supported by the evidence I uncovered. It wasn't something I set out to prove. It was something I learned along the way. Um, yeah. So, I, and the other thing I learned, which I already mentioned, is how diverse feminist opinion about prostitution has been for for a very long time, and it tends to be very oversimplified in the present. But there were some incredibly radical feminist voices in the past who were very much calling for sex workers' rights, um, and that's a history that I think needs to be remembered. Um, that I had no idea existed before I yeah. wrote the book. So, what um, are you what, what are you doing next? What am I doing next? Well, I've just I've just finished the disappearance of Lydia Harvey. It's just come out um, this April. It's just just gone, um, and so I'm doing a lot of thinking and talking uh, about about that. Um, and I'm also working, and I'll plug this here. I'm working on a special his- uh, a special issue of the Radical History Review um, with Judith Walkowitz, who's um, oh. another amazing historian of commercial sex. Um, in in Britain, um, and Rachel Schreiber, who works on um, the narratives of anti-trafficking in the United States. And we're putting that together. Um, it's called Troubling Terms in the Sex Trade. And we're really keen to have um, short pieces from people who have lived experiences of sexual labor, um, talking about um, what words mean so we're really thinking quite hard about what words mean um, and what their histories are um, and troubling those terms, denormalizing them. Um, so we're, we're working on that together um, and um, also watch out for a Journal of Women's History special issue that myself and Philippa Hetherington, who's an expert in the history of prostitution and trafficking in Russia, are putting out, which is uh, about... Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it now. <laughs> uh, uh, intimate labor, migration, and sex um, in historical perspective. So a, a series of articles that really look at this concept of trafficking on picket um, and, and think through it, particularly in the context of intimate labor and women's work and migration law. Okay, so last opportunity here for absolute shameless plugging. Who are you? What is the name of the book and who published it? <laughs> My name is Julia Late. I'm a historian uh, uh, of modern Britain and I work at Birkbeck. The book we're talking about today is, uh, is called Common Prostitutes and Ordinary Citizens, um, and it came out with Paul Grave. Um, and I uh, also want to plug my next book, which, as you noted, continues on from uh, this one, which is called The Disappearance of Lydia Harvey, A True Story of Sex crime and the meaning of justice, which came out with profile books um, just this year in 2021. Um, and that one is a trade book, which means that it's super affordable. I'm so excited <laughs> about that. I love writing books that people read. Um, and The Disappearance of Lydia Harvey is definitely designed to be a book that people read. And also, is that, that's A, somebody else is like uh, interviewed with you with this on the new, new Book Network, but I can also put a link to this in the, the blurb that accompanies this. So it's been awesome to speak to you, Julia. My name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent who specializes in the lived experiences of sex work. And this is the New Book Network.